the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me this episode from Thin Lizzy, it is drummer Brian Downey. He has a new band called Alive and Dangerous. And on the other side, I have got Tony Banks, uh, formerly perhaps, or currently of Genesis. Depends who you ask and what day of the week. He's got a new album called Five, done with the Czech National Symphony Orchestra Choir. Huh? How's that? But before we get to that, uh, our Rock Talk segment today, I have got on the phone currently with me former Guns N' Roses and Great White manager Alan Niven. Good day, Sir Alan. How are you? I'm very well. How are you today? Good, good. And, you know, when I had these two guests on, uh, Tony and Brian, the first person I thought of reaching out to was you because you sort of, you were there through the 70s. You saw the progression of of Genesis. You saw the progression of Thin Lizzy. And to me, one of your bands, Great White, had that ethos, had that that work ethic of Thin Lizzy. Um, is that fair to say that, that they had that sort of similar swagger uh, of Thin Lizzy? Uh, I, I think that's very kind of you to say that. Um, and it is not uh, a misconception or a poor observation. Um, with Great White from 1985 on, uh, there was a deliberate determination to reinvent the band after um, an unfortunate debut record. And the essence that we moved to could probably best be described as um, a a British rock and blues band from the early 70s. And Thin Lizzy were a fabulous band from that period. Um, Not many bands write a true classic song and Thin Lizzy definitely did that with the boys are back in town, um, which is a uh, an interesting song that, that related back to his uh, Phil Linnett's mom and the pub that she ran in Manchester. And although the boys are back in town has probably a little, you know, become a, a sort of bros anthem, it was actually written about a, a bunch of wide boys, a bunch of criminals called the Quality Street Gang who had had to lay low for a while for obvious reasons. And uh, one day, Phil was uh, talking to his mom on the phone. He's out on tour, and mom said, well, the boys are back in town, referring to the Quality Street Gang. Yep. And the light bulb went on in Phil's head, and a, a true classic rock and roll song came out of it. Um, you yep. know, and it's, it's, it's interesting with, with great classic rock songs. You sometimes wonder if they're both a blessing and a curse, because how do you live up to it, and how do you do that again? Um, yeah, well, that that brings me back to a discussion I had years ago with the Knack's Doug Feeger, and I've told this story a hundred times, but I asked him about, you know, my show, and I said, oh my God, it's it's so great that you had that hit. It must have been so wonderful. And he, and he said to me, he goes, are you kidding? He said, that was a golden albatross. He said, every time we went into a record company after that song, they said, yeah, we don't hear another My Sharona, go try again. But I'd lie if I said that was bad because I'm sitting here in a mansion with a pool and, and, and I don't have to work. So, eh, <laughs> you know. Exactly. And truly great songs live forever. And The Boys Are Back in Town sounds as good to me today 
is the very first time I heard it, and, and you know, it's built on Brian's drumming and great guitar work and and, and a great attitude, and it, and it's a true classic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It really is. So, so let me ask you about that because the Alive and Dangerous band, Brian Downey's Alive and Dangerous. They are touring, especially in Europe, and they do the entire Live and Dangerous album from start to finish. Great live album, of course. Was that one of those albums that you had in your collection? And if not, do you have an appreciation for it? I mean, how was how important is it in sort of the the grand scheme of rock live albums? Uh, it, it was an album I had, but there again, I was a very voracious listener and had almost anything of of worth. Um, but maybe I'd, I'd say, you know, somewhere in my consciousness as a kid, um, Thin Lizzy and the sensational Alex Harvey band kind of morphed into something that I saw as a really good way to, to uh, approach an album. Um, so between those two bands, yeah, I'd say, I'd, I'd say that there's influence in in great white absolutely um before we get over to uh, brian let me just ask you about uh rory gallagher uh, brian mentions him during the uh, the interview was he one of those guitar guys guitar heroes that you found to be very influential and 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 you've got a new artist called chris buck of buck and evans who's to me he's got that thing you know rory had that special something and i'm, I'm man chris has got that special something too right well, it's like writing good songs. I mean, you know, I, I tell people that there are only basically six songs that exist. I love you. I hate you. I feel good. I feel bad. The world is wonderful. The world is screwed up. And since there are only six songs that exist, it makes it obvious that what we fall in love with is the personality of the artist and the particular way in which they express those sentiments. And Rory Gallagher was definitely an eloquent and articulate guitar player. And I would, I would like to say that with Chris Buck, he is probably the most eloquent and articulate guitar player that I've ever worked with. Um, and he's got himself a golden albatross recently. Uh, Total Guitar just voted him best new guitar player in the world, which is, oh, thank you very much. Oh, my God, how do we live with that and live up to it and live it down? It's kind of like, you know, when the kids used to run around in London in the late 60s and, and paint Clapton his God on the walls. Um, you know, it becomes an albatross. But, you know, I have to sit there and say, hey, at least you're being noticed. You're not sitting in your, your bedroom in your parents' house wishing that uh, someone could hear you play. People are noticing how well you play and they're beginning to gravitate toward, towards your band. So it's it's cool. It's very cool. And and if you haven't heard of Chris, uh, obviously go check him out. But he did in 2013 a version uh, for a Kiss tribute album of, of Sure Know Something. And it, it is, along with Tony Montana, uh, the best version of that song you will ever hear. It, it is so emotional and, and bluesy. And it's just, it's just, who knew that song could be that, quite frankly? Well... Well, yes. I mean, you know, the, the, the art of doing a cover is to obviously make it your own and to perhaps bring out of it more than the original writer or original performer could. And uh, Tony Montana and uh, Chris definitely did something magical with that. And I would mention that uh, 
Tony's got an album coming up that I think yeah. people will like. Yeah, and, mention uh, I'm it. Really, I'm really looking forward to to hearing that album finished because there's, there's going to be a, a couple of tracks on there that people are going to really love. And Tony actually has sent me some advanced music, and it is great. It really, really is great. So people should check that out. And I will finish with this before we head over to uh, to, to hear Brian. But the band, uh, last album, Thunder and Lightning, 82-83, they had John Sykes come in from Tigers of Pantang. Song Cold Sweat, one of the best songs they've ever, ever uh, recorded, to me at least. Um, did you ever have a chance when you were touring with Guns N' Roses and, and with Great White to run into John Sykes? And if not, what did you think of him just as a player? Because I just think he's a monster. I mean, he just is a monster player to me. Well, again, uh, we're, we're talking about somebody who has the ability to invest their personality into their playing. And Sykes definitely had that ability. And uh, maybe my memory is old and fuzzy, but wasn't he with White Snake for a while? He was with White Snake. He was with Tigers yeah. of Pantang. I mean, yeah, just monster. Uh, and it's it's unfortunately he's sort of fallen off the radar a little bit, like Vito Brado of White Lion. But it's it's time to get those guys back in front of an audience, a camera, whatever. And let's let's just rock, my my friends, right? Yeah, I, I think somebody should. Um take the uh, Clapton crossroads idea and make it into great guitar player tour and just take out a, a bunch of people like like that and, and go and do a tour. Oh, yeah, that would be great. And uh, speaking of tours, Alive and Dangerous on tour all through 2018. And without further ado, here is drummer Brian Downey. We are speaking with Brian Downey, the new band i guess is brian downey's alive and dangerous but uh it's been it's been a long time uh coming of it brian pleasure to speak with you absolutely wonderful yeah it's great to speak to you mitch so let me start right off with uh the project brian downey's alive and dangerous you are celebrating Mm -hmm. of course the thin lizzy album live and dangerous which was recorded not so far from me being uh, in canada it was recorded partly in toronto Mm -hmm. um talk to me about celebrating that album but also getting back behind the seat of of the drums and and deciding okay it's time to get out there it's time to play again um yeah talk to me about the formation of the band and then we'll move into the uh, album yeah uh, okay well uh, well i met the guys uh back in 2015 i i, I went down there's a thing called a vibe for fellow here in dublin uh, celebrating phil's life uh, every fourth of january and uh I went down and uh, I kind of knew beforehand that, that there was going to be something special going on because uh, I met Brian. Obviously, uh, I knew Brian Grace, uh, our guitar player, um, for quite a long time. But then uh, when I actually uh, asked him about this uh, this project, uh, he uh, he was going to play one, which was with Matt Wilson, our, our bass player, and Phil Edgar, our guitar player. He mentioned these guys and he, he said, come down, have a, have a listen. I went down, had a listen uh, to the rehearsal. I was asked to get up and play with the guys, and I was so impressed, and I had absolutely no problem with that. I, I got up and played a couple of numbers back then. And, um, you know, I really I really was impressed with, with the guys. Uh, the attitude was great. They knew all the songs really well, and, um, you know, and the actual gig went really, really well, you know. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of uh, kept in contact with, with Brian Grace for a few weeks, a few months, 
And uh, we kind of hatched a plan to get these guys uh, into rehearsal rooms. They live in, up, in, up in Belfast, so he came from Belfast down to Dublin. And uh, we started rehearsing back in um, uh, 2016. Uh, we went straight into rehearsals and, you know, uh, the rehearsals were absolutely no problem, no hitches. So we went through the whole day with just playing Thin Lizzy uh, songs without any any problem, any problems whatsoever. The guys were really conversant with the songs and knew all the, all the, uh, you know, the, the, the ins and outs of the phrasing and all the rest of it. And the, the feel was good. And, you know, I really was uh, kind of impressed with that because there was absolutely no problem, no stopping. Uh, you know, we, we went through five or six, seven numbers without stopping. And that was just incredible. First time really I ever played in, the, in a rehearsal studio with these guys. So from that, we decided obviously to um, get something together because, uh, you know, we had it in mind, me, myself and Brian, to do something uh, around that period. So when the guys turned up, I realized, well, here, here we go. This is it. We don't need to look any further. And that's, um, that's exactly what happened. So we, we, we just continued rehearsing. Um, we got a friend on board from, uh, from the old days. I knew a guy called Dirk, Dirk Summer. He just he uh, he wanted to come in on on it to to organise some some dates and some tours and that's exactly what he did and you know we're we're in the position now where um, start of the year uh, we're going to you know concentrate on uh, again on Europe and uh, UK and hopefully uh, you know we 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 might even get out to uh, North America at some stage during maybe even this year so but we're not exactly sure about that but uh, that's that's the plan that's the intention to get around to all the countries um, that St. Lizzie were uh, very popular in. And obviously America was one of those countries. So that is the plan, uh, hopefully. And, um, you know, we just we just need to wait now and see what kind of uh, uh, tours are going to be going to be lined up for us this year. Well, hopefully many. Um, the Live and Dangerous album uh, celebrating 40 years. Talk to me about that album and what made it so unique. I mean, you come from the 1970s, and live albums are sort of the thing du jour. You know, Kiss Alive goes big. Peter Frampton comes alive, goes big. Thin Lizzy, now yeah. you come out. Uh, talk to me about putting together the live album, and why do you think it has endured in people's hearts for so long? Yeah. Well, the idea of putting the, the, the live album is exactly what you just said. Frampton Comes Alive is around. Uh, at that time, um, we had uh, the Who live at Leeds was was uh, uh, you know released around well a good few years maybe before uh, Live and Dangerous, but we were very influenced by all those live albums that came out around the, the start of the seventies, mid seventies, uh, um, you know, and and it was you know we were actually in a, a rehearsal situation where Phil came up with, with that suggestion to. Uh, you know, to to record uh, a live album uh, on tour, and um, you know, so we, we were kind of you know thinking about this for for a good while, and then you know, Phil says, well, in in a rehearsal, you know, okay, guys, there's a a tour coming up. The next tour is going to be uh, recorded by um, a mobile studio, and uh, yeah, you, you know, we were well into it. We wanted to do something like that, uh, you know, because um, we 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 kind of knew that. You know, we were hard to touch on stage. We we, we were in that period of our, our of our career that very few bands uh, in the UK could touch us. You know, and uh, you know, for a good maybe two or three years, 
we we had we kind of held that position in the UK. You know, very, really good live band with with some hit hit records behind us. So, you know, we we really did uh, have have a good live set. We we knew that anyway. So, and all our fans obviously did did as well. But I think basically. Um, you know, the idea was was to get all the albums, uh, amalgamation of all the previous albums that we did in the studio. You know, get 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 some of those tracks onto one album, and and uh, obviously it's going to be live, and and, uh, and that was the intention to play as as as, as well as we could on those uh, on those shows. And you know, we, we were obviously really aware of, of of the of the position we were in. You know, um, we, we had a, a, a fantastic. Uh, you know, mobile, mobile studio, and we we took advantage of. It. We had uh, Tony Visconti on the desk. You, you know, you couldn't get any better than Tony, and um, we we just we just concentrated on playing as best as we could, and that's exactly what happened. We we did, I think, on those uh, on those recordings. You know, so so that you know that was uh, that was the reason why uh, we 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 recorded that album. Now, don't forget as well that. Um, at that, at that particular stage, you know, there was lots of bands around uh, th- that were saying they were influenced by Thin Lizzy. So that was giving a, giving us, a, 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 you know, another kind of a boost, uh, you know, because of the fact that there was bands bands in the UK even saying it. Uh, Thin Lizzy are, are a really good live band, and that was obviously gave us a great confidence as well hearing that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I was just going to say that, that that's. That's sort of to me where where the band made you know that that's what that was the band's bread and butter the the live show the albums are great we're not we're not putting down the albums but but yeah. live it just it took on an extra little something that's hard to describe it just, just such a yeah. great live band um we're, we're talk we talked to you, you mentioned studio albums real real quick uh, the last mm-hmm. studio album Thunder and Lightning um, yeah it was produced by Chris Tancredis who recently passed away I'd like yeah, to get some did, thoughts yeah. about Chris but also I'd like to get some thoughts about the album. Did you have a feeling when you brought in John Sykes and, and just you know talk to me about bringing in John John and and working with Chris as a producer? Yeah, well, you know, Chris actually uh, you know worked with John uh, on previous albums with a band called Tigers of Pantang. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic so, band, by um, the way. Yeah, a great band. You know, really good cool. band. Yeah. And uh, so you know, so we were in we were in. Uh, a situation where we, we we were looking for a guitar player, and we we knew that you know um, there, there was guys around. You just have, we we just had to find them. So uh, as far as I remember, Phil was having a, had, had a conversation with, with Chris uh, in the studio. I, I, no, I wasn't there, so I uh, so I can't really tell you exactly what happened. But you know, Phil said to me, he said he had a had a meeting with Chris. Uh, Chris recommended John Sykes from Tigers of Pantang. Now Phil didn't know uh, what what the situation was because I don't think he ever heard Tigers of Pantang at that at that period. But he took uh, Chris, Chris's word for it. Uh, John came down uh, to a rehearsal. Uh, I think it was in the studio because we, ju- we were just about to record the album and we, you know we were in the studio ready to go. So John came down. Um, you know, just jammed along on, on a couple of tunes, and you know, we discovered very quickly that John was an incredible guitar player. You know, amazing player, and uh, you, you know, so 
Phil turned around to everybody goes, well, what, what does everybody think? And I went, yeah, you know, I've no problem with, with John Sykes whatsoever. He's, he sounds great. Uh, slightly different, a bit more heavy metal maybe, but that didn't deter me. And I, was, I really thought he was a fantastic guitar player, still do. And uh, so, you know, if it was left up to me, he would have come straight in without any problems. But there was uh, not so much of a, 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 a audition, but it was uh, certainly ears were, 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 were perked up, you know, listening to, the, to, to what he was playing. And everybody was, after half an hour, was blown away by, by John's playing. So it was just, I think it was just natural after that uh, session that yeah. John joined. You know, was, he was slightly different than the rest of guitar players. He had a, a heavier feel. Uh, he had a great sound, but it was definitely heavier than the previous uh, players. Maybe you know, obviously Gary Moore maybe was the exception there, but uh, but he but he had a heavy heavy uh, metal sound, and uh, you know, so we we decided, yeah, we we incorporate that into our into our sound, and uh, that's how and it worked out. Sound, it you know, worked out, yeah. You, you look at a good, song you know, like. So, so I was just going to say, you look like a song like Cold Sweat, which uh, Megadeth later covered. Yeah. Absolute I'm, classic. I mean, just... Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, and, but it was a slight, just a slight deviation, uh, you know, compared to some of the previous albums we, we, we played, a little bit heavier. And uh, so that, that, was, that was fine by me. I, I had no problem with that. And uh, we were trying to find a kind of a new direction because of all the different guitar players we had previously. And we were trying to find our feet again. And uh, when John came in, uh, that was the case. You know, he, uh, he contributed a hell of a lot to, uh, to the album, uh, played, played really great and contributed to the songwriting as well with Cold Sweat. And, uh, you know, that was a hit single for us um, in the UK and, and some parts of Europe as well. So, you know, we were, we were kind of lucky to find John at that particular time. And, um, you know, so, so we just carried on for a year. But unfortunately, around that period as well, you know, there was a kind of a drop-off in, in, in the bands, in, in the interest in the band. So we were kind of not in a nosedive by any, by any means, but we were certainly not as popular as we were a couple of years previous to that. So we had a problem because um, our manager kept saying to us, you know, the, the uh, audiences are, are kind of there, but they're not, you know, it's not, it, it's not ideal by any means. You know, sometimes you'd have a full house and some other, other gigs you wouldn't. So there's problems there. And he did suggest that um, we, we should uh, maybe sort of, you know, st- stop playing for a few years just to uh, take stock and you know, all, all that. So we, we sort of took his advice and, yeah, that's what happened. So we decided to do a, a, a last tour. It was a world tour that went on for over a year. And after the year, um, after after the year, we just said goodbye, and, and that was the end of that. That was the end of Thin Lizzy, and it was, it was actually as simple as that, and as quick as that as well. Because when we when we got off the plane, that was it. We just shook hands and said, "See you sometime again." And we all went our separate ways. And uh, it, it's strange, though, right? That, that that you you build the brand and the brand and the career for, for, for over a decade and then yeah. just overnight it's like well we're done and it's like, oh, overnight wow. seemed, seemed to be yeah that's that's exactly what happened but the overnight did go on for a year you know the, right. the, the terror went on for ages no but, but it's, um, it's strange though that you think that it, it really is sort of very finite yeah. it was very quick um I, I, let me take it, it, it to may of 2010 uh the band announces a new lineup with mm-hmm. uh, Vivian Campbell, Marco Mendoza, and the incredible, incredible Ricky Warwick, who can just sing his lungs out. I mean, just such a... Yeah. 
you, then you head off on a Judas Priest tour, which I happened to see in Montreal. Mm-hmm. It was a great show. Yeah. Um, talk to me about the that and, and, and at, at the time thinking, okay, we want to put this back together with Darren and Scott. We want to mm-hmm. go present these songs to the audiences. And then it gets to that point where we have to make a new album and doing it as Thin Lizzy just ugh, wouldn't yeah. really work. So they're going to call it the Black Star Riders and you go, mm-hmm. yeah, I can't, I can't be well, part of this. Yeah, no, that, that's no. Well, you're, you're, so correct, correct me, not, correct me where I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, yeah, you're, you're kind of right there. But you know, when we get into the, into the recording situation, um, you know, I still wasn't 100% convinced that a recording was was the way to go uh, for for uh, with a new Tunisia album. I I I, st- I seriously wasn't convinced. Even up to the demo stages, I wasn't uh, convinced that that this thing was going to happen because of the fact that. You know, in in the back of our minds, I think, you know, including Scott and and, and Ricky and, and everybody else involved, uh, I think at the, in the back of our minds, we kind of knew, you know, at some stage, you know, somebody might might take up on this, and you know, might, you know, and and really, at the end of the day, I was thinking, you know, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, and I think, you know, that was the, that was the case for me anyway. And when we got the board, uh, you know, that mightn't be the, the best thing to do. I was c- kind of relieved, to be, to be quite honest, uh, about it because uh, of the fact that, it, you know, it would have been slightly disrespectful, I think, uh, if we did go ahead and do an album. So, but, you know, that was that was all right. You know, uh, we got the board, uh, you know, everybody had, a, we all had a meeting, we, we all discussed it and, you know, we came to the conclusion, absolutely, we, we won't do an album. Uh, of, of new Thin Lizzy songs, but then it was it was uh, suggested that okay, well, seeing that we we won't use the Thin Lizzy name, why don't we just change uh, change the name to something else? And when when that was suggested, uh, which meant really that it would be a completely new band, an absolutely new band. Okay, there's connections with Thin Lizzy, but basically the band is brand new. Now, you know, under those circumstances, I I obviously you know, slept on it overnight and start thinking about it. And I came to the conclusion that a, a brand new band with a br- brand new songs wasn't the I- ideal thing for me because uh, a few years previous to that, it, it, was, uh, it was put to me, you know, it's going to be a reunion of things with Darren, Scott, Mark Mendoza, Ricky Warwick, uh, and uh, Damon Johnson. Uh, you know, that was great, but... When it came to it, you know, and the decision was made to, to change the name, that's when I just opted out. I just, I just didn't think that was the way to go. For me personally, that wasn't the way to go. And uh, I made my, you know, I made my feelings felt and all the rest of it. And and everybody agreed, you know, that, you know, obviously a couple of years previous, we we, we got together as, uh, as Thin Lizzy, but now it's going to be changed to a new band. And I just didn't. Uh, I just didn't think that was suitable for me, and uh, I, so I just decided to, to basically step aside and just let somebody else take over, and uh, that's that's what happened. And uh, Jimmy DeGrasso came in, then, I think, and uh, he he played on the uh, on the uh, on the first and on the other albums as well, yeah. uh, Black Star Riders albums, and uh, that was great fine. Albums, you know, by was, the way. I'm just going to say, yeah, good, gonna, you know, great album, no problem, yeah, great album, and. Um, but really, I just didn't want to go through the whole rigmarole of starting a new band, going out and touring all the albums and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, 
I just didn't think that was the way for me. So I just, that's why I, I stepped aside. And I really just wanted to continue playing uh, Thin Lizzy really with the band, but that wasn't what they wanted. So I, I, I respected that. And I made my, uh, self plan. I, I, you know, I said, I said, uh, you know, that I just, I just uh, stepped aside and let somebody else take over. And that's exactly what happened. That's what happened. So, so let me ask you two questions from that then. Uh, Alive and Dangerous, is that a band that at some point you would like to get into the studio and record either, well, well either the, 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 the Thin Lizzy classics with this lineup or new material, or is it just really, I want to focus on being a touring band? Well, well initially, the idea was to just focus on being a, being a, tour, a, a touring band. Yeah, but then, you know, having listen to the fans on, on the road, you know, people coming up looking for autographs, standing there speaking to you for about 10, 15 minutes, they, they want to know what's going on. So, I mean, everybody was asking, are you going to do a, a new album of new material? And, you know, uh, I had a chat with the guys and, and, you know, everybody went, why not? So at some stage, I think maybe we, we, we might do a, a, an album of original material. You know that might be in the future, maybe next year or, or the end of this year. But at this present stage, we're just going to concentrate on uh, uh, playing shows. But there is, you know, there's no there's no reason why we can't uh, maybe go in and, and see what, what what comes out of it. Um, Man, you know, nobody has a track record of of, of songwriting in, in in the in the band at, at the minute. But that's not to say that you know in in the future there won't be somebody within the band who who, who will. Uh, Hopefully, come out with some some decent some decent tunes, and uh, but we haven't got there yet. So we're in the process now of, of uh, you know waiting waiting to see um, exactly how we stand with, with touring this year. Maybe make some time to uh, to go into the studio. Maybe put some demos down to see how, how things turn out. But that 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 should be, that's you know further down the road. Uh, maybe the end of the year, maybe the start of next year. But at some stage, I think we should get into the studio and see what what can materialise. You know. Uh, but having having said that, there's nobody in the band has a, has a track has a track record of, of uh, songwriting, so it'll, it's going to be brand new experiences for for all the guys. Uh, <laughs> It'll I be think, brand you know. brand new for everybody. Um, so so this <laughs> yeah. leads me it leads me to the second question of Thin Lizzy because in 2016. The band goes back out with um, Scott Travis of Judas Priest and Tom Hamilton of Aerosmith does the Jailbreak 30th anniversary. Yeah. Was is, is that a suggestion that there's some kind of animosity between you and Scott and the guys, or is it just not, I wasn't not, interested? Not at all. No, okay. absolutely no uh, okay. animosity. Now we all we all um, uh, split on, on on good terms. You know, I, I didn't get any uh, feelings of animosity whatsoever. But the reason I, I, I didn't do the, uh, the the tour you just mentioned is because it was actually right in the, in the middle of getting uh, the, uh, the Alive and Dangerous band together. So I couldn't do uh, two, two things at once. And, you know, I, I really didn't want to, uh, at that particular stage, um, go on tour, do the, this Tim Lizzy tour thing uh, that happened in America. But, uh, you know, because I really didn't have the time for it. That's that's basically. Well, so the so let me let me rephrase it. this then. If the opportunity arises again for whatever live and dangerous 40th anniversary or thunder and lightning whatever 30th anniversary, yeah, would you consider it or is it automatically no? Oh no, I, I would I would consider okay. it. Okay. Once it wouldn't, it doesn't impinge on what I'm doing right now. If 
if, if, if both of those things clashed, I, I'd, I'd, I'd have to take uh, the Brian Downey alive and danger side. <laughs> right. <laughs> <You know>? Of course. <laughs> so, it's always, it's always yeah. nicer to be your own boss. That's that's what. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, let that's me right. let me ask you this: We we are speaking on February first, February first, nineteen ninety nine. Metallica mm-hmm. releases their version of "Whiskey in a Jar," a song right. that, of course, was uh, very very popular for you. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about that song and what it meant for you and the band, because it really is identifiable to Thin Lizzy, even though it's not your song. And Metallica yeah. took it to that next level. But what does that sort of song mean to you as a band, as a person? And and mm. and, and, and let me push this even further, even sort of culturally, because it really is. Yeah, it, it's bigger than just whatever six minutes. It's it's mm. so much more than that. Yeah, it is. And now culturally, it is very important because it was a song I grew, grew up with here. Uh, you know, it was always not so much played on the radio, but it was always uh, people in, in parties and who they used to call them hoolies here, you know. Uh, so you go to a hoolie and somebody's sitting in the corner playing Miskin the Jar with a guitar. Uh, then that, you know, that, that's what this song is. It's, it's just an institution here. You know, everybody knows the song. It's been around for years. And different ballad groups used to play the song. And, but there's really only two versions people care about. We care about the Thin Lizzy version. We, yeah. I mean, that's really sort of what it's come down to. Just yeah, two phenomenal I know, but, versions. That's right. But the, the original version, um, where we, we took, I think we took uh, the, the, the Dubliners version um, and tried to make it into a kind of a rock tune. And, and it, I think I think we succeeded <laughs> doing that. But but the, the idea was, um, you know, because the, don't forget as well that Eric and Phil used to play folk clubs before uh, actually not before when Thin Lizzy formed uh, just to just to make an extra um, money they used to play these uh, folk clubs uh, acoustically so Phil would turn up with an acoustic guitar and so would Eric and they'd, they'd go through all these uh, folk tunes and uh, you know and, and Whiskey in the Jar was part of that repertoire that he played and when it was introduced into the band, it was actually introduced as a bit of a joke, but not completely because of the fact that we just used to jam on it before we actually got stuck into rehearsals properly. And um, and, and actually jamming on, on Whiskey in the Jar was, was how, how the actual single came about. Because when we were jamming, uh, our manager was outside the door of the, of the rehearsal room listening to us playing it. And he came in after we finished and, and uh, said, look, guys, you know, uh, sounds really great outside there, and you know why don't you go into the studio uh, if you have time, whenever, and put that down. So, uh, so we took we took that advice on board, and next time we were in Decca Studios, we uh, we uh, decided to uh, to record it, and um, and Phil had a, a great song called Black Boys in the Corner. He, he wanted to uh, release as the A side of the single, so it would have been Black Boys in the Corner as the A side, and, and Whiskey in the Jar as the B side. And that's, that was the intention until uh, Dick Rowe, the head of Decca Records, heard, heard, it, heard the tune. And he went, uh, hang on, guys, it's going to be the A side, not the B side. So <laughs> it was uh, Dick Rowe's decision. He was the, yeah, the head guy there. Smart man. To uh, flip them around. And uh, I'm kind of glad he suggested that because it was a big hit. I, I, I'm not really sure if uh, Black Boys in the Corner would have been a hit, uh, you know, like Whiskey in the Jar, but... But Dick Rowe was certainly right about that, you know. He, he, he turned down the Beatles, but he he uh, he definitely gave Thin Lizzy uh, the first hit single with Whiskey in the Jar. That's funny. By I, suggesting I, that we flip it around. 
I, I just said that he was a smart man for suggesting whiskey in a jar, and then you tell me he turns he, he down the Beatles. He, was, right? he wasn't smart turning down the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, now I, do, I do know that we've run over our time, so I'll finish with these two questions. Uh, June 2nd, you're playing the Rory Gallagher International Tribute Festival with, mm-hmm. of course, Brian Downey's Alive and Dangerous. Yeah. Uh, just quickly talk to me about the importance of Rory, because we know Vivian Campbell, who was in uh, Thin Lizzy for a while, huge yeah. fan. Uh, oh, yeah. You just talk to me uh, about Rory because he, in North America, I don't think he got his due, and he's just yeah. a talented, talented, talented. Uh, yeah, he sure is, you know, really. I mean, Rory, uh, Rory Gallagher, I mean, you know, uh, years ago, to get in to see Rory Gallagher was, was your big ambition to, to actually get into a club to see him because the clubs were so packed, you could barely get in to, 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 to get a ticket. So, I mean, he's so much of an institution here, and, uh, you know, I mean, he went to England. He was the first band, I think, to go to England from uh, from Ireland to, to make it, maybe the second, actually, after Van Morrison and them. But he was he was up there uh, in the early days uh, playing in England, and he really put his stamp on it when, when, uh, when he went over, because, you know, I know the blues thing was happening. It was a big blues... Uh, Revival in, in in England and in the UK at that that particular period, but he did uh, put his stamp on it, and everybody uh, from Ireland was was kind of really impressed uh, with his you know his his performance on on the records that were coming out. Uh, you know, I got I got a couple of albums uh, of, of Rory in the early days with Taste, really impressed with, with the playing and that with John Wilson and Rich, Richie McCracken on bass, and, and you know. They were a great band, but when Rory actually went out to do his, to, to he broke up taste to do his own thing. Um, he, he, to me, he was just you know he was untouchable on stage. You know, really, really hard to to get on on stage with Rory and, and try to blow him off. That was that was impossible back then because we tried. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a time there when uh, you know everybody tried to blow Rory off. It was just impossible. But he was just incredible uh, on stage, incredibly talented guy, you know. And his live shows were, were just unbelievable, you know. And, and sometimes the records don't convey that, you know. He was just so powerful live on stage. And it was a, a little three-piece band he had. It wasn't a big band by any means. Now, this was Taste. And they, were, they sounded just so powerful, you know. Uh, yeah, larger than life. I mean, just absolutely yeah. larger than life. And and we'll finish yeah. with this, because I, I know we're, we're already 10 minutes over our allotted time, but... Yeah. Um, Jailbreak from, of course, uh, 1976. It's got Jailbreak, it's got Warriors, it's got Boys Are Back in Town, Cowboys, Emerald. I mean, yeah. it, it essentially is a greatest hits album. I mean, it's not even an album, it's a greatest hits. Yeah, uh, right? there's some great songs on it, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Jailbreak, again, was one of those albums that came together quite quickly because of the fact that we kind of started relaxing around that time. We weren't really pushed for a hit record, even though the record company was was harping on about it, but, you know, we, we just took our time, you know, Phil was writing incredible uh, material, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't panic, so we, we um, and, you know, I think that's the, that's the reason why we came up with some classics, you know, uh, plus the fact that we had a, uh, a great rehearsal studio that was outside of London, it was actually well outside of London, you know, so there was no, no distractions, and uh, that was another reason why the album sounded so good. Uh, because you know we rehearsed we rehearsed the songs, uh, you know we we rehearsed them really well. In fact, and when we went into the studio, you know we, we were nice and relaxed because of it. 
and um, and that made made everybody uh, you know feel good because there was a nice relaxed atmosphere there. We uh, we had some incredible. We, we knew we had some incredible songs that Phil had written, and uh, everybody wanted to get in there and, and uh, put these songs down. And you know, we, and again, there was no uh, re, no sign of it being being a hit record when it was released first. It took it took a while to to creep up, and uh, and when it did, uh, that really gave us a, a nice uh, a nice feeling. You know, at least people are starting to buy our records. Because before that, uh, Lizzie's, Lizzie's, uh, you know, the, the albums were steady sellers, but they weren't big sellers by any means. But Jailbreak uh, started to, to change all that. You know, it wasn't really our, our biggest uh, biggest album up to that that particular period, that that time. And um, you know, I think you know because of that album, that's that's why the band obviously kept going. I think yeah. if we had a you know, another flop, as you say. I don't think the band would have, would have survived too long. Is it the crowning but, jewel in the in the discography for you? I mean, I, to me, I think. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. I I personally do. Yeah, I think uh, d- definitely Jailbreak. Now, I do like some of the early Deca, Deca albums, uh, Vagabonds in the Western World, but by would be my maybe my second uh, favorite favorite album. But no, Jailbreak was uh, and and still is my favorite. After uh, after Alive and Dangerous, even though there's some tracks, uh, you know, that cross over uh, onto Alive and Dangerous. Of course. Uh, but you know, when when it was released, we realised we had a hit record on our hands, and and uh, so all all the all the promoters were were phoning up, uh, trying to get us to play tours, and that's that was great because that's what we wanted to do. You know, that really put us on the map uh, back in back in 1976. And, uh, and you know, and the band just continued on then, being successful for a few years, for a few years, and then the band broke up in uh, uh, for the last album, 82 or eighty three, I think. Yeah. But we is, had a good few years of, of success. Is it fair to say that that's the one that sort of broke you in North America? I mean, obviously you had albums before, but is this the one that where Americans and oh, Canadians went? Yeah. Oh, there's a band oh, absolutely. there. Absolutely, most okay. most definitely. Yeah, it was, okay. it was definitely the one that broke us in in, uh, in America and Canada. And all around the world, in fact, because up to that, people only kind of knew us from Whiskey in the Jar, and our albums weren't weren't big sellers up to that. Uh, although Whiskey in the Jar was a big seller, but it was a single record, uh, but it was a big seller. But no, I mean, Jailbreak definitely put us on the map. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. Uh, Brian, great, great pleasure. Alive, Alive and Dangerous, and of dangerous course, will be touring all year. All year. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mitch. Cheers. 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 Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. There you have it, folks. My interview with uh, Brian Downey, formerly, I guess, of Thin Lizzy. New band is Alive and Dangerous. Go check them out if you have a chance. And I'm uh, going to move over to Tony Banks of Genesis. I discovered them rather late. It was Invisible Touch that's really got me into the band. I, of course, I had heard the other songs and videos on Much Music and MTV, but... Invisible Touch was my era of the band. Um, back talking about Genesis with me is Alan Niven, former manager of Guns N' Roses and Great White. Uh, you probably discovered Genesis a wee bit before me, I, I would imagine, right? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> it wasn't Invisible Gen- Touch, no? There wasn't, uh, what's that song on there? Uh, it, it wasn't Tonight, Tonight, Tonight or Land of Confusion that got you all excited about Phil Collins? 
I, I first got interested in Genesis when they came out with an album called Selling England by the Pound, which hit my very inflamed political nerve just in the title. And I thought, well, this could be interesting. Um, and I did a little research on, on Genesis, and, and I have, have to say it, it, they're intriguing to me in a couple of ways. First of all, they're the product of the English public school system. They were all charterhouse boys, um, which was interesting to me because my boss at Virgin in my department came from charterhouse for one reason. And secondly, in terms of credibility, I raised an eyebrow. I was, how could anything of worth come out of the English public school system? But it didn't, you know, this is a system of education that was designed to produce people to run an empire. And if you could survive in a public school, there's nothing that an Afghan tribesman could inflict on you that was worse than what you'd already experienced. But anyway, first of all, they did have an ability. But the other thing I found fascinating about Genesis is that they split with their lead singer, Peter Gabriel, and then both rose to greater heights once they had split up, which was, I think, rather unique. I can't think of another band that's ever done that. Um, but well, with Genesis, well, since with, then, the police, you could say, did it with Sting, but they were certainly the first. And they were also they got rid of Anthony Phillips and brought in Steve Hackett, and right. they just kept rolling. It just nothing got in their way. I mean, that's it. Just tells you about the quality of the entire entourage rather than that one star, right? Well, yes. Um, obviously, there was a talent pool there. But for me, for Genesis, um, I didn't, didn't connect that strongly with early Genesis. But when a song called Abacab got released, that really hit me real well. Um, it, it was an interesting period. It was uh, the period of David Bowie being in Berlin and expressing his angst there. Um, it was the period of Brian Eno and his tape loops. And Abacab is a tape loop. And it's not, uh, the, the name of the song doesn't relate to the chords of the song. It actually relates to the sections that they were jamming over the drum loop. And if you listen to this, I mean, the drum loop is absolutely fabulous. It's really crisp and clear and really drives the song. And there's an atmos, there's an attitude in that song that, I think was very much the moment. Um, it was an interesting time. The long, malevolent shadow of Mother Russia was falling over Europe, and the end was nigh, and people thought that Russia was going to expand into Europe at that time, and there was paranoia in the air. And, and I, I got that in, in Bowie's music, Eno's music, and Genesis's music at that point, too. I think they... Uh, reflected the moment there. Oh, they absolutely did. Now, I, I of course, mentioned, like I mentioned, discovered them. Well, discovered, probably not their best word, but during Invisible Touch. But when you go back to the album just before that, the Genesis album that has songs like Mama, That's All, Home by the Sea, Illegal Alien, just, yes. you know, hit after hit. Now, that, that one was in 83, and of course, you were... I guess by then already in California and, and stuff was was starting to happen maybe with Great White and other. Did you have time to pay attention to, to these other bands or were you so focused on the bands that you were working with uh, that that these kind of albums just sort of fell to the wayside? 
when I, when I first moved to uh, California, I was working for a, a very small distributor uh, that uh, relied heavily on uh, import records. So I was very much aware of what was being done in England and very much aware of what was being done in Japan and Australia um, and, and very aware of uh, what the record companies deemed uh, good enough for release. Um, it was a period of time when uh, American record companies were kind of frozen. The um, the boom of the late 70s had collapsed, and I, I think in 1980, the only record that really sold in, in large numbers was The Wall. Um, and interestingly enough, for me, um, my my own taste was I wanted to hear more guitars. I wanted to hear more American music. So I was very fortunately placed in California and uh, sharing a house with a guy called Don Dawkin where I, I could contribute a little bit to bringing back some American voices and American guitars. I felt it was time that we needed a little more American rock and roll. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with a little American rock and roll. And, and funny enough that you mentioned Dawkin, they do have a reunion live album coming out in April and uh, George Lynch recently said on record that he would like to play more shows with the classic lineup and that is something that I don't think George has said since about 1985. So, so well, you know, you know, God 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 bless him and I love the fact that there are there are bands that can still draw an audience and play songs that were loved 20 30 years ago, but I kind of wish that there were more contemporary bands. Um, I put a little energy into um, a Phoenix band called Razor. Um, and uh, we have a record recorded. We actually sent it out to um, press worldwide to see what the response was going to be. And because of the response, we decided, you know, maybe we won't release this record yet. We'll wait until we've got a situation where there's going to be better support for it because people seem to like this. But one of these days, we will get the Razor record out, and I think you'll find that it, it connects well with where rock and roll was at its best in the mid to late 80s. Oh, I agree. And, of course, uh, before uh, we introduced uh, Brian Downey of Thin Lizzy, we were talking about uh, Chris Buck, and you can find out more about him at buckandevans.com. Uh, it's, it's just blue. Do you want to call it blues rock? I mean, it's, it's just this great guitar rock. And rock and soul. Rock and soul, yeah. So buckandevans.com, but... Uh, let us not forget Tony Banks of Genesis. We'll we'll get over to him. Uh, by the way, you, you mentioned bands that are playing old, well, not old songs, but bands playing classic songs that fans want to hear. The uh, the I'll get a quick comment here. The Guns N' Roses reunion tour. I've seen three shows or four shows. Have I seen three? Every one, I think, better than the last. Wow, uh, you know there was a lot of that. This is not going to work. It's going to implode. But here we are. I guess two years later and. Uh, you must have some pride in the boys and, and some pride in what they've been able to accomplish because it really has taken the world by storm. Well, I have a tremendous um, pride in Slash, who at one point was probably most likely to become a rock and roll fatality. And he turned his life around. And quite honestly, he's playing better now than he's played in his life. And... I'm just delighted yeah. that that's the case. 
and I have to say, well, uh, and I, that and with I'll... with um, with with Axel, I am just stunned at the workload he's taken on, and I am absolutely um, in awe of the fact that he goes out there and performs for three hours. How he does it at his age, I have no idea, but it, it's amazing. It really is, and, and I I fully agree with Slash because he seems to have. A, an ease and a fluidity and a, and a joy that I, I don't want to say he didn't have before, but it, it just it just seems like he's in the perfect spot. And, and you go to the shows and you hear him, and and especially on the Chinese democracy songs, you just hear his stamp, and you go, yeah, that slash, and that's what that song needed. And it's just it's just absolutely glorious. Um, and speaking of glorious, Tony Banks's new album Five, featuring the Czech. National Symphony Orchestra and Choir is out now, and here is the one, the only, Tony Banks. We are speaking with Tony Banks. Uh, is it formerly of Genesis or currently of Genesis? How, how do we describe that? Well, I think if Genesis still exists, I'm still there. You know, we're never quite sure whether we exist or not. We describe ourselves as mothballed. Mothballed. But, um, yeah. Mothballed, that's what we are. Yeah. And the new album is five, the uh, third classical album by uh, by tony uh, by the way great pleasure to speak with you I, uh, and we'll talk about invisible touch later but that album in 1986 was sort of my everything for that year so we'll talk about that later but all right sure um five the this new album the classical album uh talk to me about working with the um the, Czech Symphony Orchestra, National Symphony Orchestra. Correct. Yeah. I've got so many things going through my head. The Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and just sort of putting together the album and and, and doing this classical stuff because we, we all know that you've been known for progressive rock and Genesis since the, God, even the late '60s, early '70s. Um, talk to me about this this album and putting it together. Well, in a way, working with an orchestra, you know, in this kind of way is is not so dissimilar from the early days of progressive rock and things I was involved with, really. Um, I kind of, the way I did this particular record, though, was to to kind of have a, use my demos as a kind of template, if you like, um, which is something I've done with Genesis and with uh, solo music over the years many times, where you record um, a basic track, if you like, with piano. Um, in this particular case, it was piano and quite, quite an elaborate kind of degree of um, arrangement as well. And then we would add all the instruments, if you like, separately. Well, we do strings all in one go, obviously, and then the woodwind in one go, and the brass and all that, and then do the soloists as well. So we had a trumpet player and a sax player, and also percussion and a harp, all playing individually, which gives me the ability to kind of um, scrutinize each part, if you like, and then you put the whole thing together, a bit like do with a, with, I've done with Genesis tracks over the years, and, uh, and when you play it all back together, it all, it all works as one. Uh, I was able to do this really because the original demos I did had quite, um, as I say, quite elaborate arrangements on them already. So that when we were adding the new instruments, you could play to my um, arrangement, and it would sort of make sense. It's um, it's the first time I've done that on the, on a classical record to do it this particular way, but I find it a very satisfying way to work because you end up with a result that is much closer to what you originally intended. I think. Yeah, it really is. Now, now the last three releases, including six pieces for orchestra and seven, a suite for orchestra going back to 2004, have all been classical. Is this sort of the direction you see yourself going in 
for the future, or or would you like to get back to a, a band situation, a Genesis situation, or even come out and do a pop record at some point, or is it sort of like, no, this is it? No, I don't. I don't make any any assumptions about that. I mean, when I did after I'd done seven, I had sort of quite a strong urge to to have you know play with drums again, you know. But then we did the tour, um, the last Genesis sort of revival tour back in 2007, and you know, a year and a half of, of two drummers banging away sort of kind of satisfied my yearning for for drums again a little bit. So the next thing I did was it was another orchestral piece. I find it just sort of comes naturally to me to do this, and uh, but I would certainly don't rule out the idea of doing doing sort of songs again uh, with with drums and everything. I do like I love doing that. Um, it's just what at the moment what what I've kind of got an opening, if you like, in this uh, in the classical world a little bit. Um, I was originally the first piece on this record, which is called Prelude to a Million Years, was originally written for a music festival over here because I was asked to to, to compose a piece for it, and it was a quite a prestigious um, music festival. So, you know, that was kind of quite a nice thing to be asked to do, and it sort of kind of keeps the door open a little bit in in, in this particular world. But um, you know, I, I don't rule anything else out. Creatively, when you're putting together a classical piece and creatively when you're putting together a Genesis piece, for you, is it the same approach in terms of I start the song this way and I finish it? The, or how does it differ in terms of the process for you? Well, I think the main difference when you're working in this sort of um, area, you're, you'll kind of feel less. There's no constrictions on you at all. You can, you can do what you like, really. And I'm, I'm naturally quite a long-winded sort of person quite rambly sort of person, I suppose. And so, you know, I can go for 15 minutes quite happily um, going through various changes and everything. And it works for me in a way. That's kind of what we did early days in Genesis. We did a lot of that kind of thing. And I'm very comfortable with that. I also love writing sort of like a concise three or four minute song as well. Don't get me wrong, but it's a different approach. And it, that always requires slightly more discipline in a way. Whereas this, I can, I can do what I like. I can, I can go anywhere. I can play any chord I like. I can change tempo, I can, you know, go loud, I can go soft when I choose. So I can write something that just is this total expression of how I feel at that particular time. And and I do love doing that. So I, I get great pleasure out of writing these pieces, really. And I've been lucky that I've had a certain degree of response over here, anyhow, for these pieces. And, um, you know, slightly beyond perhaps the Genesis crowd and into the classical world slightly. Yeah, it's got to be nice to, to be picking up new fans at this point. Now, uh, the album comes out February 23rd. Do you see yourself bringing this on the road? Now, of course, it's not you can't just sort of show up in a bar or at a, you know, an arena. And, and But but is there some kind of hope to get this to North America, to get it to Canada and, and, and present this around Europe? Well, I asked you a little bit. Is this, I'd love someone else to do it, really. Um, the music is, well, look, I've got the record out there. It's out there, you know, and I don't feel any particular... You know, obviously, I don't rule out the idea that I might be involved in, you know, in a production of it, if you like. But it could be done by anybody, in a way. And, you know, it'd be quite fun to... I just like other people to sort of to, to use it in programs, in a way. Because when you go to classical concerts, when I've been to classical concerts, very often they have a piece in there that is one piece you didn't necessarily go to see. You know, you kind of go to see whether it's sort of Beethoven's or something, you know, but suddenly have a, another piece at the beginning, which is one you didn't know you were going to hear, and you hear it and you really like that, and it sets you off somewhere, and I feel you know, maybe that could happen for me, with one of these pieces could be played as a sort of an opening piece to a concert or something um, 
you know, there is the alternative, obviously, of going out there and, and playing the whole thing to people. But I always feel you're going to then be playing, preaching to the converted in many ways. And it'd be nice to, to be able to kind of win people over who didn't perhaps know that they could like this sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and I've had a chance actually to hear it. And it, it's actually very peaceful. It puts you in a very sort of peaceful mood. I love that. That's that's what I like about music, just to get you in that happy place. Um, let me quickly talk about uh, Genesis here and Invisible Touch. Uh, like I said, it was sort of the soundtrack to high school for me. So um, you see age, you see. I always ask people what their favorite album, what age were they when they their favorite album was kind of released? It sounds to me like you're probably something around sort of mid-teens or something, yeah? At that time, yeah. Now, I mean, now I'm now I'm fifty, but then I was. No, I know, but then, but, but then you see, that's yes. the point. What was I? It's, uh, always, it's always the album that, that people tend to sort of like, because obviously, obviously, that albums over the years, and people say, "Well, that's my favorite album," and you think, "Anyhow, go on, go on." Well, I was just going to say, it's it is the one that spoke to me, but also if you look back at you know the Wind and Withering, Trick of the Tail, it is very different. It is certainly more of a foray into. Uh, I don't want to call it pop, but more sort of commercial music. How yeah, do you... Yeah, right. More pop. Yeah. Well, at the time, you know, we were kind of... I mean, I think we'd sort of... We'd, you know, when we came out of the sort of... Out of the 70s, I think we felt we'd sort of gone about as far as we could with the progressive thing. And we wanted to try and do other things. We were basically writers more than anything else. And, and the idea of trying to sort of be a little more concise and to try and avoid doing some of the things that we'd done many times before, the usual sort of reprising songs and the sort of big chorus and the rest of it to try and something and Abacab was very much what we decided to was where we decided to try and change a little bit and then the you know, obviously Invisible Touch was two albums after that and we'd I think by that time got just got quite good at writing pop songs you know which was something we never really thought we'd sort of be be as good at doing we were lucky obviously that Phil had become a, um, a you know such a star in his own right that did help us quite a bit I think but the songs on the album are very much group-written songs. And um, I think we just, just were lucky that we got very concise moments. You know, I think particularly proud of songs like Land of Confusion, you know, um, which kind of, and throwing it all away and everything, which are kind of very simple songs in a way, but just, but really work in a, in a short format. Having been a person, you know, who's perhaps more comfortable writing 25-minute songs, but it's, it's very exciting. If you can get it all done in three or four minutes, then that's very exciting too. It is, and and yet my favorite track on there is tonight, tonight, tonight. The the longest. Well, it's a long, long track, you see. Yeah, the well, well one, the second longest. Um, do you miss playing those songs? Do you miss getting? I mean, it's been since two thousand seven. It's been eleven years. Do you do you miss getting out on the road and and playing, Land of Confusion, Visible Touch, uh, you know, that's all, and all the the Genesis songs. Well, I I can't say I really do. I mean, I look back on it with a lot of fondness, and I really enjoyed the time we did, and I particularly enjoyed that tour the revival tour because there was sort of no pressure on us really we didn't have anything to prove we were just going to play the songs and the people who liked us were going to come and see us and people who didn't like us wouldn't come you know and that was fine by us um i i you know and i don't i don't i i don't have a particular sort of thing about playing live really i'm i'm more interested in writing music than i am in playing it but having said that you know if i go to someone else's concert and i sort of see the stuff and you go backstage and you meet people and you think yeah there's a sort of part of me that would quite like to have done it. It's a part of my past, you know, but it's not, it's not crucial to me. I don't feel it's a, it's not, I don't yearn to do it in the way that some people, I mean, I feel there are certain people who, who live for the road really. And I'm not one of those people. Okay. So you mentioned that you, you, you want to, you're more interested in just writing music. 
does it have to be for you just for an album, or would you be interested? Because the last time I spoke to Anthony Phillips, he's doing a lot of library music. And, yeah, I know. Yeah. Would you be more into doing library music and soundtracks and just uh, ad placement, or does it have to be a creative album, you know, a whole sort of piece? No, it certainly doesn't have to be. I mean, I'm not sure about library music and stuff. I like, you know, music for me. I mean, I'm amazed that Anthony is happy doing just that, really, because that's his main thing now, I know. I mean, it means your music is heard a lot, but nobody kind of knows it's you. <laughs> it's, um, I kind of, I, I'm very happy to do smaller projects. It doesn't have to be a big project, but I do, it's, to me, it's the writing and the creating and the realization of, of that thing that I enjoy doing the most. And um, certainly want to do, you know, want to carry on doing that, but it doesn't have to be in a sort of full-blown thing at all. You know, I would happy to do smaller things, but it's a question really of what, what you're asked to do and what you're offered to do. I mean, if you're working in the world of, you mentioned library music or ads or all kind of soundtracks or anything, then you, you've really got to be kind of approached a bit, really. Someone's got to want, want to use you. And that hasn't really come my way. But you have to, you know, you sometimes I'm asked to do things, some things I do and some things I don't. Well, it certainly would be interesting to have you score some, some soundtracks. Um, Calling All Stations, which is currently the, the last album that you've put out as Genesis, Talk to me about that album and that decision to bring in uh, a new singer, to bring in Ray. Good decision, bad decision, it is what it is. Well, I think you're right. It is what it is in a way. I mean, we kind of, um, I think when Mike and I, Mike was actually quite keen to do a record with, that, you know, with a new singer. And I, I was a bit sort of, I thought, mm, I wasn't sure about it really. I think Phil's gone. That's going to be quite tough. Anyhow, we, we started writing together and we got some stuff together we thought was quite good. So then we looked for a singer and we found Ray and everything. And, you know, I think the project had its sort of good side, if you like. I think I think the, the live band was great. I really enjoyed, you know, we had Nia Zidiaku in the drums and Anthony Drennan on guitar. And I think there was, the band was really good. And I think Phil, uh, Ray had a great voice, but it perhaps didn't suit every piece of music we had. And I think trying to fill Ray's, uh, Phil's sort of boots was a very difficult job. And, and it was a slightly depressing period in the group's history, I think. It wasn't our greatest album, but it's got some good tracks on it, I think. And um, I feel that, uh, you know, the tour we did afterwards was, was, you know, the people who came, I think, enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to do, but it was, you know, it wasn't our sort of high point, really. And it was kind of after that that I thought, well, maybe maybe I'll give up. You know, maybe that's it. I'll hang my boots up and, and call it a day. But then I thought to myself, I'd, one thing I'd really like to do is, is a, you know, is an album with an orchestra because I'd thought about it many years before and I'd done a soundtrack for a film which had had orchestral music in it. And so that's what led to, you know, kind of a slight revival for me, really, in a way. Did the album Seven back in 2002 or something. And, you know, and I've managed to do two since then, which is this album Five, which is the, the latest one. And it just gave me a kind of new lease of life in a way. And, of course, in the middle of all that, we did a, a Genesis kind of revival tour with, with Phil playing still coming back and singing and playing drums and it was kind of like old times really which was great fun to do um the business of genesis uh, continues is there and of course you had the uh, the archive uh, box set that came out not too long ago is that something that will will continue will we see other releases from the band down the road dvd shows live albums anything well this you know in a way i think when you know the band itself is really not so keen on this kind of stuff but i know that record companies and managers love it and some elements of the audience love it as well i, I always feel it's kind of like you're just trying to kind of fleece fleece the audience a bit when you put out because we've really got nothing new to offer it would just be 
new other new live versions if you like of pieces and new shows and stuff like that that's but they're all kind of there's no new music to to come and you know in a sense that's what interests me is new music if there was any new music and there isn't we've got enough we've raided the archives there's nothing left there really is nothing left the, the cupboard is bare so but you know i when you say will there be other things there probably will be other things because um we can't stop them <laughs> the record company is always willing to uh to come well to they come are and i mean i know that some people love all this stuff you know and there's we've got the bbc uh, over here has got lots of archives of stuff we've done over the years which is obviously it's never been released a lot of this stuff but it is it is just other versions of the same songs you know that's there's nothing new uh Talk to me about the album The Fugitive. Uh, you got to sing on that. Uh, yeah. Uh, talk to me about putting your voice to record, and would you consider doing another vocal record, another album where we would have your voice on it? I don't think I want to sing again. Really. I, mean, I enjoyed doing that, and it was a good, good experience, really, because it taught me a lot about um, singing, uh, in a way, and what I was putting the other guys through. You know, when I said to Phil, sing that note, say, do that, do that, you know. And then I sort of, when I did my own record, I kind of did, when I sang my own things, I did simplify the melodies quite a lot and do it slightly differently. Um, it was a good experience for me, and I, I think it, you know, it wasn't too bad. And I kind of, um, I'm very glad to have done it, but I'm not really looking to do it again. No, I think there's so many great singers out there. Why not use one of them? You know, why use me? It's a sort of, a, you know, I'm, I'm not a great singer. I'm, it's a, it's a, People quite like hearing, I think, a person singing their own songs, and that's why it's quite nice to have done it. But I don't don't crave doing it again. <laughs> well, well, I, I I think some of us would love to hear that again. Um, <laughs> uh, Mike and the mechanic, Mike and the mechanics, Mike uh, Rutherford uh, released an album, yeah. "Let Me Fly," in uh, 2017. You've got five this year. You're obviously both still creative, still uh, making music. Do you see yourself? working together again in any capacity, even if it's not a Genesis project, even if it's just two guys doing a classical album or, or a pop album? or did, Would you work with the I guys know we, ever, we never rule anything out. I mean, I see Mike quite a lot, and we obviously still get on very well and everything. And, you know, I think... But I, I, I sort of... I don't really think it's very likely, you know. I mean, there's, it's like with, 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 you know, Phil obviously is kind of like not... He can't sort of do quite what he used to do in the old, old days. He could probably he can still sing and he can still write, I'm sure. But um, so you know, any combination is is very unlikely, I think, in a way. I mean, Mike and I, who knows? I mean, if something came up and said, "Oh, do this together," you know, we wouldn't say no necessarily. I mean, we're kind of, you know, we we're still compatible writers, and we obviously we've gone very much in opposite directions at the moment. I mean, Mike's gone to you know very much to a sort of the pop pop area, and I've gone very sort of much of the classical area yeah. so you know we're quite a long way apart at the moment but we have a lot of points of contact and we still like a lot of the same music and we like we like what each other does and everything so but it's, there's no plans certainly no plans to do that but we never really do that uh, it'd be certainly be nice um i just want to talk about quickly the the history of genesis in in its longitudinal 67 69 you form the band uh anthony is there with you when members started switching out in and out when Anthony leaves, Steve Hackett comes in, Peter Gabriel leaves. Um, talk to me about some of those times and just how it was to sort of stay focused and stay moving forward. Was there at any point when, you know, Peter Gabriel leaves, for example, you just say, wow, this, we can't do this. We, we got to pack it. I mean, talk to me about sort of staying focused and keeping the band moving forward. 
I think the only time I, I thought really of, of that we shouldn't, um, that we, the band wouldn't continue was when Anthony Phillips left because, you know, the four of us have been together, you know, it seemed a long time. I know it's not that long if you look at the history of it, but it was felt a long time. And we very much sort of like, you know, we played off each other and we were sort of like, we felt we had something before, between the four of us, you know. And so when, when Anthony left, I thought we might not continue. But, um, you know, I think... Interestingly enough, Richard McPhail, who was our sort of friend and helper in those days, was the one who really persuaded us, I think, that we should keep going, that we had something going, we should keep going. And, um, you know, Mike and Pete and I talked about it. And um, I think we just sort of, we just felt that, well, let's do it. I, the only thing I said at the time was I thought we ought to get a new drummer because I felt the drummer we had at the time, John Mayhew, was really not good enough, you know, for what we were trying to do. So we decided we'd get a new drummer. And obviously that's when we got Phil. And he was ended up being a whole lot more than a drummer, obviously. But he was a fantastic drummer as well and took the band onto a new level, I think. So, um, you know, that we kind of discovered that. And then obviously later when Peter left, I think we were very determined to try and keep on one way or another. And obviously we were lucky to be able to replace Peter essentially with Phil. So that was easy. And then, you know, by the time Steve left, although it was a bit of a blow, was nevertheless... We kind of got used to it by then, so you know the three of us I think worked worked very well together. So that was a that was a very happy period. I think that period from um, when when we worked as a three piece, you know, which obviously from then there were three right through to we can't dance, and uh, happy times for us really. So you know, we seem to sort of I think these things happen over a period of time, and you sort of work out a way of doing it, and it seems to work okay. Yeah, and happy times for me because it gave me invisible touch. Um, mm. Right. It's- and I know that we've only had 20 minutes, so it was a bit of a sprint today. But uh, is is five sort of the the last album you plan on making, or are you going to stay creative and you're already working on the next new uh, album? God knows. I, I'm not working on the next one, but knowing how these things are, it may well not be the last. Um, you can't get rid of me that easily. Um, no, I think it's you know I'm I'm very happy with this, and you know if it was the last thing I ever did, I'd be very happy with it. But you know I I know what I'm like. And, you know, you sit down and start writing some stuff and things happen and who knows, um, maybe something else will happen. I mean, I mean it's not, you know, I, I have no particular particular thoughts about it. I'm obviously, I'm, you know, not getting any younger, as it were. And, um, but I still feel, you know, the creation, creative sort of spirit is still with me. I still have the desire to do it and, and still enjoy doing it. So I hope there'll be more. Yeah, well, uh, uh, thank you. And thank you for all the music over the years and, Next time, hopefully, we'll get an hour. This was was like a sprint for me today, but but thank you for everything. Great pleasure. Okay, great. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.